as we start this uh, journey through scripture, we want to kind of dedicate it to the Lord. And so Becca Jarrett is on staff with us. She's going to pray for the kids and the youth. She's our junior high youth director. If you don't know her, you need to get to know her. Um, She's phenomenal. But that's not why we're here. Um, She's going to pray for the youth and for the kids, and then I'll pray for the adults. Pray with me. God, we come before you today thankful for your word that you've given to us, thankful for this year that we get to come together and we get to read through scripture as a body of Christ. Lord, your word testifies to your faithfulness from generation to generation. And so today we want to lift up the youth here at our church, Lord. Lord, we know um, that we desire for our students to spend time in your word. And so I pray that as they read through your word and as they read through the truths that are on um, the pages of scripture, Lord, that those truths will grow deep in our students' hearts, Lord. That even as Psalm 1 says, that they will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. Lord, we ask that you move mightily in our students here, Lord, that they will taste and see that you are good, and that they will cha- that as they read through scripture, it will change their lives. We know that scripture does not turn away void, Lord, and so I pray that as our youth open their Bibles, that they will grow, Lord, that they want to put sin to death through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that they will want to go out, Lord, from this place and walk by faith in the good works that you've set before them. We know that Satan wants nothing more than to distract um, our students, Lord, and for them not to be in your word. And so I pray protection for them, Lord. Um, guard them from the attacks that the enemy is going to bring, Lord, whether it's doubts or discouragements or just the busyness of everyday life, Lord. Um, I pray that this is a year, Lord, that our students say that they know more of you through your word. Um, let this be a group of students here at Mitchell Road that take your word and they share the gospel to their friends and they go into their schools and they go into their sports teams, Lord, and they go into their families and they go even wherever you call them to go, Lord, and they proclaim the good news because of the time that they've spent in your word this year. You delight in spending time with your children, and so I pray that our students will delight in spending time with you, their Heavenly Father who loves them. I pray for us, Lord. I pray that we will set an example for them to follow, Lord. But I also pray that we will watch the youth, Lord, as they pursue you and as they spend time with you, and that we will be spurred on and challenged and encouraged by their boldness, their honesty, and their courage. Lord, I'm thankful for the students here, and we pray that this is a year where they walk away more in love with who you are through their word. And we lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. And Father, I pray that your word wouldn't return void. Uh, You've given us your word for Uh, life and godliness for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And if we are honest, uh, many of us who have been walking with the Lord for years and years and years have never read books of the Bible that we claim lead and guide us in life. We know that as we read, we will have doubts, we'll have questions, we'll have concerns, we'll have... um, all kinds of uh, wandering thoughts about what this passage means or means or could this be true. And, and we, we pray, Father, that you would uh, lead us towards Christ and towards the uniqueness of your word, that we would see it as inspired, infallible, and in all that it teaches without error, and uh, that you'd help us to really become students of it and that it would change our lives. So give us the grace we need. Uh, this year as we jump right in, we pray in your name. Amen. Hey, uh, two things I want to say on that subject before we move on any further. I want you to imagine yourself, first of all, 
as a 10-year-old kid, that's going to be harder for some of you. You're further removed than others. But imagine yourself as a 10-year-old kid again. And imagine yourself as a 10-year-old kid in the dog days of summer when it's so incredibly hot. Just imagine that. Maybe you didn't grow up in the South, but imagine those days where it's so humid and so hot. You got that picture? And then imagine you're invited to a pool party and your mom's late because she was always late taking you places. Some of you can imagine that. And imagine on the way there, she has to stop to drop something off at a friend's house. So the pool party was supposed to start at noon. You get there at 1230. So you didn't make it on time. All the kids are already in the pool. What do you do as a 10-year-old kid? Do you sit on the side and sulk and say, I'm not going to join you because I wasn't here at the beginning? There's no way. You kick off your flip-flops, you take off your shirt, and you jump in the pool. So look, hey, we're nine days in. Some of you have already messed it up. Some of you haven't even started yet. Some of you have missed days. The, the point is not to sit on the side of the pool and sulk because you haven't been there from the beginning. Take off your shirt, kick off your flip-flops, and jump in. Do the abbreviated version. Do the non-abbreviated version. It doesn't matter. The whole call that we're giving you is just jump into Scripture. And if you mess up for a month, that's okay. Jump back in. We're not checking boxes. That's not the point of this. The point is not just to check boxes and say, we did it, pat ourselves on the back at the end of the year. There's no cash awards given for this. The point is just to engage with the Lord through his scripture in a way that many of us in this room never have done before. Let me say a second thing. If you read scripture, you're going to have all kinds of questions. Matter of fact, you're going to have probably at the end of this year more questions than you have answers. But my commitment to you is I'm not going to protect you from scriptures. I'm going to let the scripture speak from itself. It's not my job to water them down or protect you. Matter of fact, I've, I found this quote from Robert Kappen. It's become one of my favorite quotes. He said, I think good preachers should be like bad kids. And I thought, I, I don't know what you're going to say next, but I love it already. Like, I'm all in. He said, they ought to be naughty enough to tiptoe up on the dozing congregations and steal their bottles of religious pills, which make them spiritually asleep, and flush them all down the drain, and then let Scripture speak for itself. And so that's what we're going to do. As we come to this text today, we have all kinds of things already going on. If you've been reading with us, we have Cain killing Abel because of a sacrifice. That's kind of hard to understand. We have the Nephilim, which I have plenty of opinions on that I'm not going to preach on today, and the sons of God and this cosmic rebellion. We have a flood worldwide or a regional flood uh, with only a few people saved in that flood. We have Noah getting drunk as a skunk after this and his sons kind of covering him up awkwardly. We have Job where there's this negotiation in the heavenly host between Satan and the Lord with what we can do to Job, what can we touch, what can we not touch. All of that has gone on in the first nine days. So we're going to have all kinds of questions, and that's okay, and that's good. We're going to hone in each week on one text in the pericope of what we're reading, and that text today is Genesis chapter 9. Three quick points for you. God limits us out of mercy. God limits us, that's the first point, God limits us out of mercy. Let me give us the context here, and then we'll read verses 1 through 6. When we come to this text, it's in the context of a flood. 
And you and I both know, if you've lived long enough, that water can be incredibly destructive. Uh, whether it's the simple water pranks, I used to do this when I was in college. I'd fill up uh, those 55-gallon trash bags that we would have. I'd fill them up as far as I could, and then I'd tilt it up against my friends' doors who were always late for class. So when they open the door, all this flood comes in and just wipes them out. It, was, uh, it makes grown men cry, and some of us laugh. I mean, we just love doing that. If it's not that kind of water destruction, it's uh, the leaky ice maker line that buckles your floors. Or, or that second floor bathroom that leaked while you were on vacation and destroyed your whole kitchen. That's unfortunately too close to the vein for some of y'all. Or, or it's uh, the tsunami. Or it's uh, something like a flood, like a Katrina. We see that the flood and water is incredibly destructive. And it's destructive here. But why did God do it? Why did God send this destruction? Well, if you look back at chapter 6, we see a couple things. We see now there's this the problem. It's either the descendants of Seth or it's this cosmic rebellion of angels taking women on earth. Those are your two options, and we're not going to go down those paths right now, but those are the two options that you have for what's happening here. But we see in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It had gotten so bad that everybody, everybody's thoughts, they were only evil continually. Now, I think it was not the sons of Seth. I think it was this cosmic rebellion. I can't explain all of that. I'm not going to go into all of the Nephilim right now, but it was a really intense situation here. And you can view this flood in one of two ways. You can view it as punishment, or you can view it as mercy. You can view it as punishment, that there's just a God up there who's capricious and nefarious and mean-spirited and doesn't cry any tears and doesn't mind wiping people out. You can view it that way if you wanted to. Or you can view it as mercy. And you can view it from Noah's perspective, who is crying out to God, would you save me from this hell I'm living in? I don't know what's going to happen to my daughters. I don't know what's going to happen to my wife. But this whole thing has broken apart. And there needs to be somebody who can put it right together. I get asked this question a lot. How can a loving God do things like send a flood to kill all of his creation? How can a loving God send people to hell? Matter of fact, I still get the great privilege of kids that grow up in this church and go to college, and they call me when they're on break, and we hang out. I just love that. I absolutely adore it, because uh, they have all kinds of questions. I'm just so glad they're willing to take the time to talk with the pastor about it. And I had a couple students this past semester who said, I, Andy, can you explain to me again? I know you have. How can a loving God do these kind of things? And what I'll typically say to them is, don't you want a God? who has the ability to judge, but with mercy? I mean, do we really want a God who can just, who would say, look, there's no harm, no foul with anything. There's never gonna be any accountability. You can do whatever you want, and I'm just gonna love you and welcome you back, and I'm never gonna cast judgment on anybody. I'm never gonna write the record for anything. Just everybody gets along. Do whatever's right in your own eyes. Do you really want a God like that? You don't. Because don't we want a God that's going to punish Hitler for wiping off 9 million Jews? 
Don't we want a God who's not going to turn a blind eye to the person that raped your niece? Don't we want a God who's going to hold people accountable for ruining families and causing trauma and stealing from companies and who have never repented and never done anything to say they're remorseful at all? Do we want a God that just is going to say, well, that's okay, let's just all get along. We're not going to worry about that. No, in our heart of hearts, we want a God to do that. And if we don't have a God who does that, then we become the judges. And that's what happens in culture. If you're a person who doesn't have a worldview where a a God will take vengeance, eventually you have to take vengeance. You have to become the judge. You have to adjudicate the claim. You have to do all that yourself. And we're not wise enough or faithful enough to do it. So we need a God who can judge, but we need a God who can judge with mercy. If it's a God who's a judge but doesn't have mercy, then the whole thing gets off. I love what C.S. Lewis says when he says, without mercy, we make ourselves judge and jury. But mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. And so early in Genesis, we get this picture of both the kindness, the hopefulness of God, but also the real reality that our sin has consequences. We have a message in Christianity of both judgment and of hope. And those two things are held together in the cross. Uh, This friend of mine on Twitter posted this. I thought it was funny, so I'll read it to you. Because both judgment and hope can be held together. He said, I've been driving around in my truck with my family's dead Christmas tree in the back of my pickup for a week just spreading Christmas cheer and reminding people that we're all dead in our sins. Because that's what Christmas trees do. Like once you're cut away from the earth, you, that thing's dead. We dress it up. You can dress it up for a week or two. You can water it. But eventually your cat's going to go through the room and uh, rub his back up against the tree. And the whole thing's going to go, you know. And you're like, oh, we're dead. We're dead. That tree is gone. And it's dead. Well, here we have water that God uses that can be incredibly destructive but water can also bring life. My family, uh, I'm, I make them do this every now and then. Uh, I'll make them watch something like Planet Earth uh, because it's a better choice than The Bachelor, which we watched the other night as well. Uh, and I didn't feel good about that and may have already repented over that decision. Um, but Planet Earth, we watched this one the other day where there was a flood of this region and life came up. All of a sudden, all the animals returned. All of a sudden, things started to spring from the earth because water was there. The water here brings life, and it brings life to Noah, who in chapter 8, he actually, the first thing he does after the building the ark is to build this altar of worship. But here's what we see in chapter 9. Now let's read verses 1 and 6. We see God limits us out of mercy. One through six. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. 
From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God limits us. There's a summary of this passage. God limits us out of mercy. This is in the context, not just of the flood, but this is in the context of Cain and Abel. And now when he recreates the world, if you will, he comes back and he says, now I'm going to have to limit you. You can just imagine the Trinity almost getting up there saying, we forgot to tell them not to kill each other. Like, how, how did we miss that? We just assumed they would know you're not supposed to murder your brother. And so they come back and, and they say, and now we're going to have to limit you uh, because we're going to have to make sure you know there's certain things that you can't do. God limits us, but he limits us out of mercy. That's why he does it. The rules that God gives us that we live under in Scripture are meant to limit us, but meant to limit us up because of mercy. Another question I get from the college students right now and all of the high school students. I'm going away with the high school students this next week, and we always do a question and answer, and I will get this question. Why can't God just let me love who I want to love? Why is homosexuality, in other words, off the books? I mean, if I, why does he have a decision on who I am required to love? That doesn't make sense to me. And one of the things I'll typically say to that is this. Look, God's laws and God's limiting us is not just prohibitive, it's protective. And I'll say often to them, God limits me too. I'm restricted and I'm limited to only having sex with my wife. God limits us in marriage. All of sexuality is limited. But the reason why God limits us is to protect us. Because if he didn't limit it, there would be no reason why we couldn't abuse somebody or we couldn't do something horrible to somebody and we wouldn't have any recourse for why or why not. It'd be complete anarchy. So to view God is to view him as somebody who does limit us and says, these things you can do, these things you can't do, and I'm limiting you out of mercy. Cain, don't kill your brothers anymore. I'm now going to require lifeblood for lifeblood. And we can see how that rule kind of gets matriculated on through. But I want you to be open to the suggestion this morning that God might be limiting you but he's doing it out of mercy. Now quickly apply it to two things. Number one, your obedience. Where is a place in your life that God is asking you to be obedient? Let's even take tithing. If God's asking you to be obedient to tithing, that limits you in other areas. You have less money to spend on Starbucks. If God's asking you to be faithful to your marriage, that's limiting you in other areas. You're not to go flirt with other girls. If God is asking you to be um, kind, that's limiting you from slandering and gossiping about people. In obedience, God limits us, but he does it out of mercy because it's protective for us and it's protective for others. So right now, 2020, where is God asking you to be limited in obedience. And here's a second point on this one, just to apply it. Where are you just naturally limited? You only have so much time in the day before you have to crash into bed. 
You only have so much resources. You only have so many abilities within your personality. And you even today have a day of rest where God says, I'm limiting you from working today. I'm going to limit you. You have to trust me that without working today, you can get that done the other six days. But I'm asking that you limit yourself and that you rest today. So where are you reaching your limits in life? Whether it's your abilities, your resources, your finances, your energy, because maybe, just maybe, that's where you meet God. Not in your ability to produce, but maybe we meet God in the places where we're limited, where we say, God, I, I couldn't get it all done today. Would you cover the rest of the way? God, I, I don't have the ability to love my kids well right now. Would you give me that ability? God, I'm at the end of my resources emotionally in this relationship. I'm limited here. I've run out. Would you help me at this moment? Maybe the place where we're limited is where we actually meet the Lord. Maybe that's the altar that Noah built. Second point very quickly is this. God recreates out of joy. Look at just verse 7. He says, and now go be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly upon the earth and multiply it. Well, we've heard that already. We heard that all the way back in the first chapters of Genesis where he says to Adam and Eve, now go be fruitful and multiply. And you know what I love about this? God doesn't say, this is your last chance. This one last time and then no more. He says, no, go be fruitful and multiply again. I know we already messed this up. Go be fruitful and multiply again. I imagined uh, that that first Saturday where I was teaching my son how to shoot a basketball. And uh, he would miss, and I would take the ball, bounce it to him again, get your elbow a little bit higher. He'd miss again. I'd throw it to him again. Get your elbow a little bit higher, just the rip, throw it to him again, over and over. You never said, okay, you just get one more shot, and if you don't make it, we're never ever going to play basketball again. You throw in the ball again. You throw in the ball again. You throw in the ball again. And here God says, now go Go be fruitful and multiply. We're going to do this one more time. We're going, to, we're going to retry this whole thing. And it's the kindness of God. I said to the staff this week via text, not all, but some of the staff that's on the stream with me, I said, in 2022, I think we need to remember this. Kindness is our Father's way. Kindness is our Heavenly Father's way. He's kind to us, and we're kind to others. It's our Father's way. Or as J. Hudson Taylor says, he says, it is the consciousness of the threefold joy of the Lord, his joy in ransoming us, his joy in dwelling with us as our Savior and his power for fruit-bearing, and his joy in possessing us as his bride and his delight. It's the consciousness of his joy, which is our real strength, Our joy in him may be a fluctuating thing, but his joy in us knows no change. It's his kindness towards us to say, go be fruitful and multiply again. And he recreates out of joy. I say that to say this. Uh, What if you've already messed up this morning or this week? There's new morning mercies tomorrow. Don't sweat it too much. Enjoy the grace of God. Run back to him. You don't have to earn your way back. 
You don't have to string together a good week for him to love you. He has a joy in you that never fluctuates. And then lastly, God restrains himself out of love. Verses 8 through 16. Let's read this whole passage. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Lastly, God restrains himself out of love. I want you to see this covenant because what is a covenant? All throughout scripture, God makes covenants to communicate what kind of God he is. He makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Moses. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with David. And then he makes a new covenant in Jeremiah. And that's going to be fulfilled by Christ, this new covenant. And here as we look at the covenant structure, we can see who God is and who he intends to be. This is not a contract. It's not a consultation. Matter of fact, there's five things I want you to see about this. First of all, the covenant is unilateral. In other words, there's no requirement for others. If you look at this covenant in particular, and as you look at this covenant, and as I preach this, think about how God is going to work with you in the same way, in a unilateral covenant way. He comes to Noah before Noah ever comes to him. He approaches Noah before Noah's even remorseful. And he says, I'm going to be your God. I want you to be my people. He doesn't make Noah beg or grovel. The covenant are on his terms. He's obligating himself. And then second, it's a covenant not because of Noah's goodness. We're going to see in chapter 9 that Noah wasn't exactly a great person. So it's a covenant not because of his goodness, but because of God's goodness. The covenant comes with a blessing where God himself restrains himself out of love. Look at verse 11. He makes this covenant, and the only person obligated is God. Noah's not obligated. He said, I'm going to restrain myself. I'm never, ever going to do this again out of love for you. I'm never going to destroy this again, even though I have the right to. So he restrains himself, and he puts aside judgment to the end. Look, if you're a part of a covenant... You know that in a covenant, you restrain yourself out of love. That happens all the time. Yesterday, we had a wedding, uh, Sawyer Norman and uh, Mary Campbell Huss. 
Uh, Neil officiated it and did a phenomenal job. And uh, Sawyer Norman, we're lifelong friends with the Normans, members of this church. You know, m- many of you know them. Our kids grew up together. <coughs> Sawyer promised to marry Kate when he was three. And that's since reneged on that promise. Married Mary Campbell and said, which is perfect for him. And you watched that covenant union, you know, these two young kids. And now that Elizabeth and I have been at this for 24 years, you watch that marriage and you see them and you think two things. Number one, this is awesome. See these two kids get married. And number two, they have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) Zero idea. But in the covenant, you, you and I know you restrain yourself out of love. That's how covenant works. I've learned more about the grace of Christ from Elizabeth than anybody else on the face of this planet because I've seen in covenant love her restraining herself and giving me grace when she could have absolutely destroyed me, absolutely tore me down, uh, held it over my head, brought it back up. And in covenant, we see God restraining himself out of love for us, obligating himself to things that only he can do out of love. And this sign of the covenant, there's always a sign that comes with the covenant, is this beautiful rainbow which only comes after storm and sunshine together in this bow, not just called a rainbow in the text, but a bow symbolizing the bow and the ultimate judgment. The bow is pointed towards the heavens, not towards the earth. In other words, saying, I will take the judgment upon myself and pour it out on Christ, my son, so that you can enjoy these beautiful colors and remember my faithfulness to you. And he says, this is an everlasting covenant. Look at what he says in verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I'll see it and I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of the flesh that's on the earth. Look, every covenant that he made, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, every covenant God made was meant to communicate his character to us. But every one of those patriarchs failed. Every one of them failed in the covenant. Moses got mad. Abraham got frustrated, communicated that his wife Sarah wasn't his wife. Noah got drunk in the next text we're going to read. Every one of them failed. And that might be good for you to realize because you might look in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm a failure too. Well, you're in good company with all the patriarchs and matriarchs of the Bible. Because maybe, just maybe, it's not about us being perfect, but being about seeing that there's a God who's faithful even when we're a failure. That there's a God who has the ability to keep his covenant to love us even when we're apathetic towards him. That there's a God who's not, who's not a trite enough to just go tit for tat and punish us, that there's a God who actually loves us with an everlasting love that is fulfilled in the faithful covenant keeping of Christ so that we can always run back to him because of the new covenant that Christ has fulfilled. 
because we're all going to mess up. We're all going to hurt each other. But maybe the focus that we have is not on our failure or our abilities, but on God's faithfulness and ability to forgive. I love the tweet I read just for some emotional break for us. Uh, The tweet from Alyssa, uh, she's a comedian, and she said, This Christmas, I'm just giving all my family members a card that says, A donation has been made in your name to my therapist. I just love I love that. Because <clears throat> we all are going to hurt each other eventually, right? But even when we do, we have a God who's faithful. So at the end, I'm closing, but I want to quote, close with a really long quote from Sinclair Ferguson, and I just love it. We're going to put the whole thing on the screen because I couldn't choose a better quote to get your mind around the Old Testament than this one. And all I want you to do is to remember that God limits us out of mercy. He recreates us out of joy. He restrains himself out of love. And he does all of that so you and I would just focus on Jesus rather than ourselves. Sinclair says, most preachers don't only preach Christ from the Old Testament, but they also don't preach him from the New Testament. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain his brother, cries out not for our condemnation but also for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing whither he went. Jesus is a true and better Isaac, who not just offered up by his own father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your, own, your son, your only son. Now we know at the foot of the cross, we can say to God, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love for me. Jesus is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is a true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the midst of the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. That's my favorite one. (laughs) Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes the people's victory, although they never hurled a stone to lift and defend themselves. Jesus is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one and who didn't just risk his life but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish. Jesus is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we can be brought in. So, Father, we thank you for your son and our Savior, God, we thank you that you have the ability to do things that we can't do. We thank you that you restrain yourself out of love. That you love us 
out of faithfulness. And as we journey through Scripture and as we mess things up, as we hurt people this year, may kindness be our Father's way. And Father, we pray that we would enjoy you and the worship of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.